You want me to describe what containers are? So the, no, the thing don't is, do that. We, we've done that about 30 times. <laughs> <laughs> We're never going to get it right, so let's just move on. Are you struggling to deploy cloud-native applications to a hybrid cloud? Do you want to become familiar with Kubernetes and Istio? IBM Cloud has a set of free, hands-on training, ebooks, and an always-on free tier of services to help you learn. Visit ibm.biz slash stackoverflow to learn more. That's ibm.biz slash stackoverflow. Hello, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. It's me, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow with my wonderful co-hosts, Paul and Sarah. Good morning, y'all. Oh, my good goodness, morning. good morning. Good morning. Sarah spent a good chunk this morning making fun of my new grass hat. I guess I'll yeah. have to put that in the show notes. Like I said. Grass hat. Grass hat <laughs> is not like an obvious term. What is no, yeah, no, no one knows what that is. <laughs> Sarah actually saw on Instagram. She was like, what was that thing? Well, like I said, I moved from the city to the country as part of my sort of like change in the pandemic. And whenever we go shopping, if we go to Target or Lowe's or something like that, my wife buys me the most rural camo hunting influence piece of clothing she can find. So she bought me like a like a, a beanie that looks it's meant to look like grass, I guess, for when you're out stalking. I don't <laughs> I don't know why, why it has to look like that. It's definitely well, be used by hunters or murderers. I'm more of a nature dryad druid. That's what I wear to my Wiccan ceremonies. That makes sense. Now, people tune in because we have a great guest today, Adam Gordon-Bell. As someone who's trying to learn about programming and just sort of get my bearings, I came across the co-recursive podcast, which he hosts, and I listened to an episode with Matt Godbolt called To the Assembly and just found it fascinating. Lots of stuff in there that I had never known before, kind of gave me a great overview of computer history as well as understanding of binary and things like that. So- Adam, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you say hello, introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Adam. Uh, I think you did a great job of introducing me. Yeah, I have a podcast about software development. We kind of try to take kind of a, a narrative approach, like people sharing stories about, about like a problem they encountered and how they overcame it. Yeah, and I also work on an open source build tool that's called Earthly. What does Earthly do? I'd like to know that. Build systems are really complex. Like they're just like a messy area where like developers build code and then somehow something happens and then it, it like gets into production. And it's always just this messy area and there's like one guy who knows how it works. And then, so we're just trying to make a tool that makes it a bit easier to to handle all that. Make an understandable way to describe like how do you get from your, you know, your source code into some working software? How do you run tests against it, et cetera? You know, like like Google internally has has tools they use for for doing builds uh, in a way that really works for them. Twitter has their What's own. What's the tool. name of their big build tool? Basil. Basil. Yeah. Basil. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And Twitter, you were saying? Yeah, Twitter has. I think theirs is Pants, um, but these pants. things are complex. Yeah. Pan, yeah. Leaders. Of course, Twitter has Pants. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's or so Twitter. <laughs> or it's called like Stork Market. It's one of those. Right? <laughs> All right, I want to completely derail based on something you just said, because I started looking at Earthly as we're talking. Tell us about it a little bit, because it's a container-based build tool. And then, then I will derail. Your build steps in Earthly will take place inside of a container, which means that you get some sort of isolation. And it means that you can run the same build process that might happen on the build server, also on your local machine, which is important because a lot of times just something goes wrong and I have no way to debug it. So we kind of are using containers as a way to isolate uh, what's happening inside of the build. So 
Here's what I was doing. I was updating. I, I turned on a laptop I hadn't in a while, and then it was time to update Ubuntu on that laptop. And I mean, and then you closed is, the it, laptop and went about your day. Just ran away, right? <laughs> like it's been walk slowly backwards. It's it's only it's been maybe six months since I turned it on, but that's a that's enough time for a lot of damage to happen, right? And as I'm doing it, and I'm thinking about our containerized world, I'm like, why am I not just adding layers to this thing instead of constantly just ripping out the guts of it and reinstalling it. Like it, it feels like we're due for that. Like, is there ever going to be a moment when we have fully containerized operating systems and all of our, all of our Chirrut jails like bear fruit? Or are we just going to stay in this world of like, uh-oh, cross your fingers. I hope I did a backup. What do you say containerized? Do you mean that instead of having to reinstall your entire operating system, you want to be able to switch back and forth? Yeah, I really do. And it's like, you have to reboot to do it. But I mean, just sort of like, why, if I'm going to have kernel 5.0, and then I'm going to get that slightly new kernel, it's just like, isn't, isn't, aren't VMs just supposed to do this at this point? Like, can't I be done writing, running dist upgrade and just go get the new Ubuntu? Have you ever looked at this uh, Nix OS? No. Well, tell me about Nix OS. So it's not containers, but it gets at the idea. It's like the entirety of your operating system is like a file where it says like what you're running, right? And then you can you can like roll forward a kernel version and roll back. And That's what I'm talking about. Immutable operating systems. That's what I want. I used it for the while. The devil's in the details. It's a bit a bit tricky. <laughs> Listen, I have nothing better to do. Let's be honest. This <laughs> do any of <laughs> I mean, it's just how many I, I run dist upgrade just to kind of relax, right? Like you just you want to see those packages come over. So yeah, this looks good. This this looks like it has a ton of console output. That's what I'm about. My strategy is just to avoid it. Can you not avoid it on Unix? I'm on OS ten and I just avoid it as long as possible and not think about it. If you're running Ubuntu. Yeah and not doing upgrades, then why are you running Ubuntu? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> I, I why gotta, I go. Yeah. <laughs> these are soothing things. Like I have a command line email backer upper yeah, that I wrote okay. partially myself. Is it not right? Gmail's backup servers? Well, it kind of is, but it's not quite. <laughs> and, you know, it goes in certain places and runs a series of filters, and then it mirrors back to the IMAP server that, that Google provides, right? And so like ru running the command get mail, you know, I probably do it 20, 30 times a day because it's actually like a little, just like it's soothing. It's a little fidget toy. Hmm. Yeah. And you see the, the Python output and you're like, okay, I got all my mail. Look at me. Adam, I'm do you have boy. any like manual things that you like doing in your life? Do I have manual things that I like to, how about checking Twitter? Does that count? Yeah. Do you yeah, have a script for checking Twitter? And then <laughs> yeah, but see, that's the inconsistency of the experience is what's so tricky there, right? Because you could be, it's like, you don't want something where you're scratching an itch where you're like, okay, now I really feel that the world is about to fall apart. Like for me, like if I haven't kind of written some sort of code in a while, like if, if it can really bother me, it's like I need to get rid. I need to do something. I feel like I have some idealized idea in my head that if I'm not like creating something, that something's wrong. I need to scratch that itch. Mm. How did you get into this world, Adam? How did you start learning this stuff? What was your sort of entree to the world of coding? School, job, where do you want to start? Oh, you want to do the whole life story? Well, I, when I was in grade 10, we had a class and it was in Turbo Pascal. Mm, mm. There wasn't a lot of teaching involved. Like the teacher was like, build a Yahtzee game. Here's a book on Turbo Pascal split up into teams. <laughs> but it was super fun. Just like we built this like ASCII graphic like Yahtzee game where you like, 
you roll dice and then, you know, you have to like score things. Um, and it was amazing. And I was just like, this is great. I want to do this. That's what I did. Here I am. Now you're a game developer. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The game stuff got left behind. I'm, I'm not a game developer <laughs> yeah. at all, but it was just fun just to, you know, type some stuff in, see something change. Like it's a pretty addictive little process, right? Yeah, I wonder if that's one of the reasons why the web took off is that, that just reloading constantly is very stimulating. You're like, oh, I changed it. I changed it. I, I always used to feel that good web engineers would have a calloused index finger from constantly reloading from the keyboard. But I don't think that's true anymore. I think that things auto-update in ways that they didn't used to, and it's no longer quite so manual. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what my version of therapy coding is, and it's like designing a website that I like, like a layout that I like for like only a 13 inch MacBook Air and nothing else. And then walking away, <laughs> you know, where it's like looks nice on my machine. That's it. That's the end. <laughs> I think like side side projects, like especially if they're throwaway, they're like they're very soothing because they don't have any constraints. Like it's like the messy real world that makes you like, okay, now I have to do this. Now it has to support whatever. Yeah. Different layouts. I have to authenticate against some Oh, that's no fun. But if I just have to write a little Python script to do whatever, or just the real world makes things less fun. It, well, because, <laughs> you know, there's that Python script that solves a problem. And then there's the one that's packaged up where you've put like a good command line interface in and you've documented. And it just, it's so easy for things to become no fun. I remember I, I brought a piece of code into work as an experiment, like a little labs project, and I'd done it on the weekends, and I had rotated the hamburger menu 45 degrees, and the outrage, and for me, it was just like, yeah, the hell with the hamburger menu, this is all nonsense anyway, and people saw it, and were like, I am so disgusted and horrified by this, like, how could you let this happen? And I realized I'd done a context shift, like, for me, I was like, no one's ever going to use this, who cares? And then it's like, it's going to get released, and people are like... You know, that's an anti-design and, and, and just the con that context change. It's not that they, they were right. Like it made no sense. It was really bad, but it's definitely more fun when things are really bad and, and, and sloppy and messy. So was that the end of your Pascal or did you take it further? Uh, so what did I do? So I, I went to university for computer science and I don't know, we did a lot of Java programming there, but also a lot of theoretical stuff. And at the time, I didn't really care for it. I was like, I want to build my Yahtzee games or, or whatever. Yeah. But it's funny because now, you know, with my podcast, I and just like being later in my career, like a lot of the more theoretical computer science stuff is pretty interesting to me. So maybe maybe I've come full circle now where like I'll, I'll interview somebody who is like a professor of computer science, whereas before I'd be like, let's just crank out code. Is it valuable in your work or do you just want to know how the machine works? I mean, it depends on the area, right? So what I like is is these like stories, I guess, where somebody can tell me something. So I, I interviewed this guy, Daniel Lemire. He's like a French-Canadian computer scientist, right? And he was telling, like the thing that got me hooked on him is he said, like people always told him that disks were, were slow, right? So he was like reading parsing something from disk and like, oh, the parsing logic didn't matter much because disks are slow, right? But he he didn't think that was right and he just did some performance checks on it and he's like, turns out disks are really fast now. Like, it's no longer the case. Everybody kind of has this idea that like IO is slow and computers are fast. And then so he, he ended up like digging in and building parsing libraries that were able to, you know, work at the speed of like SSDs. I really like these stories where somebody's like, here's this problem I had. And like, here's the steps I did. I mean, I always notice with serious computer scientists, especially the ones who go out in the industry, they they get into physics, right? They're like, okay, 
here's what the hard drive is doing at that moment. And, you know, we're going to need to stripe that data onto the drive for the real-time financial property. Brian, you're just like, whoa, there's an actual machine in there. Like, there's there are things that are happening inside of the box that have to do with little things turning on and off very quickly. And I, I'm like you in that it's like, I, you know, maybe I backed in through more pragmatic reasons, but as time goes on, I'm just like, well, there's science in here and physics, and it's pretty cool. <laughs> Adam, it's interesting what you said. I noticed this from our blog when people were trying to decide what to assign or we're working with a client who's doing like a sponsored story. The thing that the audience seems to respond to most, as you said, is kind of that narrative process piece. And especially I thought something was right, but it turned out to be wrong or I built something this way and then I realized I should have gone the other way. For some reason, that uh, seems to have a lot of appeal to the engineering mindset. Those are usually the pieces that perform best on our blog, maybe, maybe as well on your podcast. I have a long story about this, I guess, right? So like I've been working here in my home office for like a long time, like nine years or something like that. Where are you, by the way? So I am in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. Nice. Okay. So you're you're there. It's you've been there for nine years. Uh, I cut cut off your early story with excitement about Peterborough, Ontario. So the thing that I the thing that I miss, like with working at home, is yeah, like people sharing these things, like like Ben was saying, like these problems, right? Like I remember when I did work for a software company in town you know, we would like go outside for lunch and then, you know, like somebody would have a tale to tell, right? About something that went wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, something went wrong with this new rollout feature. And then, you know, they'd kind of, they kind of tell you like, you know, the server was down and you're like, oh, did you check X? And they're like, oh, I checked X. It wasn't X. And like, did you check Y? It wasn't Y. And then like, finally you're like, was it Z? And like, yeah, it was Z. And it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then, yeah, you're kind of like, you go through this process in your head. And it seems like just wasting time, but I think of it in a way, it's actually kind of like training, right? They're like taking you through this like thought process, like their thought process um, and kind of sharing this like folklore of like, here's how you solve this problem, right? And it's so much better than if you were like, oh, let's put a Google Doc together and we can put like the five things to check if X goes wrong. Like you're not going to remember that. It doesn't It doesn't work. It's a storytelling culture, right? Like you, and you try to capture the storytelling, you try to get the folklore down. It doesn't actually function that way. I've tried. People don't fill out the Google Doc. Yeah, it feels like brute force. Or people don't read it. And no one reads it. No one goes back to like, unless an editor puts it together as like interesting crisis reports. Yeah, and you don't remember there's a Google Doc either. Yeah, there's no incentive structure. Whereas if people are having coffee, the other thing too is you kind of want to keep your failures quiet for the most part in your career. And so like it doesn't doesn't percolate out. Whereas if people are talking, they're like, oh man, Ah, oh, Sally saw that like six months ago when she tried to up up you know she tried to update Postgres to twelve, and it turns out that all the inodes were screwed up, or just whatever it is, right? And you you find yeah. it turns out that everybody has those stories, and they stick right. with you. That's the thing I noticed because like I've been doing like I've been doing my own podcast for a long time, and then when I thought back about it, the things that stuck out to me were the guests that kind of shared one of these experiences. So I tried Mm. to double down on it. Because it's like, then when you have a problem, you're like, oh yeah, remember Richard was late for his kid's birthday, and it was blah, 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 and it was the caching headers. You're like, oh, the caching headers. (laughs) And then it's like... (laughs) It's always coarse. Just, it's coarse. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. DNS. It can be DNS. Yeah, it can be DNS too. That's true. Yeah, I mean, this reminds me of what Clive Thompson said when he came on. You know, he would be going to do these interviews for his book on coders, and sometimes it's hard to get him to warm up. Maybe the person wasn't, you know, sort of clicking with him in the interview, so he'd just say, "What's what's the worst bug you've ever seen? Like, talk me through mm-hmm. that. Tell me that story." You know, and then immediately 
the words would just start flowing. They start going. And by the end of that story, you know, they were kind of ready to talk about anything. I was just gonna say, this is making me miss lunch at Stack Overflow. That's what this is what uh, <laughs> it was all about. I don't know about y'all, but when I'm in on that situation, I always feel like I'm just kind of like brute forcing a, a solution, right? Like I'm just trying that, you know, when I'm in that world of trying everything, this happened to me yesterday. I was, I was playing with an Arduino and I couldn't get it to work. And I was really frustrated and I tried everything. And with hardware, you know, you're switching, you're not just playing with different ways of approaching the software. You're also thinking about how you're connecting the hardware and is it this, this USB cable and should I switch it out with this one? What about this hub and that kind of thing? And then when I finally figured it out, it was like three hours later, I had downloaded the wrong library. But I, when you're like in that <laughs> world, you're just kind, you kind of feel like you're just sometimes it, it can feel like you're just throwing spaghetti at a wall to feel, figure out what's going wrong. So when you fix it, it's really nice to tell that story. I mean, it's ironic that we're doing this from on the Stack Overflow podcast, right? Like, yeah. You, yeah. you know, there, there's a definite, like, we're all touching different parts of this elephant. That is a folklore gathering uh, system, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And, but even so, like, it's super valuable, but there's a some sort of tissue in just listening to, because you hear the sound of their voice and you hear the frustration and the confusion and, and you, you kind of get a human story connected to the work as opposed to the answer. That's really valid. This is very tricky, right? Because when people advocate for remote work, they often advocate for a lot of these things. Like, we're, you know, we're, we can write it down. We're going to have these tools. And that completely works. Like there's, But that remaining 10% is hard to find. All right. So starting a podcast, listening to stories, trying to maybe get some of that oral culture back into your very written culture life as a remote employee. Adam, you're saying you work with a lot of uh, or you talk to beginners or, you know, and one thing I've realized and one thing I try to tell all the beginners that I interact with is something that's a really senior skill is the confidence and ability to say when you don't know something. And I think, you know, just I don't know, you know, what is that thing? I don't know. Can you tell me what that is? Um, that I think another part of that senior skill is being able to, when you hit that problem, being able to quickly and effectively communicate what the problem is in a format that is, here's what I'm seeing, here's what I've tried, here's what I am going to try mm. after this, here's all my system configurations. What do you think? I always think that's really yeah. interesting. And to what Paul was saying about this being, you know, a Stack Overflow podcast, I mean, it is interesting. Stack Overflow itself is like sort of very circumspect. There's not a lot of storytelling, but across the Stack exchanges, like if you go to the software Stack Exchange, there is a lot of that, you know, well, let me, let me sit back and let me tell you about how I did it wrong five mm -hmm. times. And then maybe we can work through your problem, which is nice. Yeah, I want that. I want I want the narrative version of it, I guess. That's like, I was late for X and I was wearing this shirt. And then I figured out it was a DNS <laughs> issue. I don't know. Maybe, you know. <laughs> it makes it stick in my head. That's great. Well, how do you find your guests? What do you what do you look for? What kind of people do you talk to? It's hard to to find. I don't have a good answer, but I would tell you, if you're like, hey, I had this really hard problem and here's what it was and I found out a way to solve it and it involved like computers and code and then on the other side of it, I was a totally different person, then that's who I want to talk to, right? Those people are hard to find, I guess. But like, you know, Ben, you were talking about the Matt Gottbold story, but I think at the center of it was this idea that like he wanted to know if some new C++ stuff was going to screw up his high performance testing and he had this whole background of like writing assembly code. So he was like, why don't we just read the assembly? And then that kind of like changed things because people were like, oh yeah, you could just look at the assembly 
and see what it's doing. Like we're so far from the place where people think about reading assembly that when he said that, like that was like a revelation and he's become kind of famous for being like, oh, let's look at the assembly. <laughs> I could just see that meeting. I'd be like, ah, uh, that sounds great. I've got a, I've got an appointment. I'll be back <laughs> in like an hour. If y'all want to get started. Yeah. There was a friend who was helping me understand a lot of stuff. And I was like, what is a recursive function really? And he's like, really? I'm like, really? He's like, really? He's like, like, yeah. And he's like, all right, let me show you how SBCL, the, the list compiler produces assembly. And I, and, and he showed it to me and I was like, oh, it's just a function that calls itself over and over again with arguments. And he's like, yeah, I mean, it looks like that in assembly too. It's wild, right? Like it, it's that output is right there. It's not actually as, it's not mysterious. It is a lot it's there if you reach for it, but it's actually, it's almost like this like secret in our culture. Like we, we kind of keep hiding for good reasons <laughs> that you can do that, that you, you know, and, and it's, it's not like you're, you're in your web browser and you're going to like suddenly see your web pages as they are in memory and assembly, but you kind of can and you learn every little hex. I don't know. It's good for you. It's good for your soul. Yeah. Like Adam, thinking about the two stories you told one about the, you know, reading to disc and this other one about assembly. Uh, they're both kind of about things that you may have forgotten that there's kind of like a received wisdom now. And then if you go back and look a little closer, it may not be true. It's almost like the like Malcolm Gladwell approach, right? Where it's like, what I'm really doing here is just taking you to the aha moment. You know, like there's like some, there's, there's a lot of, you know, winding paths here and like you think you were going one way, but like the payoff is yeah, that aha moment, which is like you were saying, that's like the fun part of narrative. Yeah, I mean, you're probably giving me too much credit to equate me to Malcolm Gladwell uh, because I'm just finding <laughs> people with interesting computing stories and having them listen. That was an extremely Canadian response right yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell, also Canadian. Yeah. That's true, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I love these stories. I So I interviewed this Brian Kernahan who um, you know was involved in the early days of Unix. And uh, like I had this idea, like, hey, tell me these stories of when you created Unix because it's got to be like I, I was like, you know, maybe he'll tell me something that's just like their secret to being so like impactful. You know, this group of people who built such important stuff. And he was kind of like, hey, we didn't really think we were doing important things. In fact, like he started off working on like theoretical computer science research, but then the group kind of spent a lot of time just like mucking around with computers, building operating systems. And mm -hmm. they didn't think it was important. They just thought like, hey, computers are kind of cool, but they're hard to work with. How can we make it better? So that was like a big aha moment for me. It was like these people, I'm like, oh my God, what was your secret? How did you decide to build this really impactful thing? And they were like, oh, we were just kind of messing around. We had a bunch of smart people. Well, then they went They yeah. went like shopping for applications, right? Like they started working on, at one point it was uh, typesetting the patent applications or something like that. Just because they're inside the giant phone company and they had to, they had to create an excuse for why they should continue <laughs> to build Unix, which is now the foundation of like all, That's almost right. all non-Windows computing that, that goes on in the world. How do you drum up more resources inside BigCo? Well, I know you're having trouble with these patent applications. They're stacking up over here. So lend us some money and some machines. We'll figure that out for you. So that's totally, it's a super interesting story because like Bell Labs had wasted a bunch of money and time on this operating system stuff in a previous project. And so they were like, nobody should work on operating systems. And <laughs> so when they... It's a waste of time. <laughs> work so on when they started switches. working on Unix, yeah. Yeah, they, they had to make up that patent story. Like it was basically a lie to say like, oh yeah, if you let us work on operating systems and buy us a new computer, then we can make these patent stuff work. And and they did, but it was it was just a bluff, right? They were like, give us an excuse to to work on well, this. Well, they didn't build Patentron 2000, right? They built <laughs> Unix that had a typesetting and markup 
really you know, inefficient way to, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But frankly, <laughs> isn't this how every nerd solves problems? It's just yeah. like it, you know, I'm going to pick a couple levels of abstraction down because this will be so much more effective if we have a general typesetting solution for everything and then we can apply it to patents. And then like, like I remember there's Donald Knuth with, with tech, the typesetting system. At one point, early days, it was like, I gave us, I gave us a goal of nine months to put one letter on a page. And it was just like, <laughs> yeah, that actually was about right. Like it took nine months to get one letter on one page. And, you know, but then from there you could go on and, and sort of change scientific typesetting. Yeah. My engineering manager, Foo goes into high gear when I hear that because, you know, you're it's kind of what you think about when you're working with a team, because I think it's really easy for anyone to get too deep into rebuilding a system. So when you start to hear, you know, I wonder what would happen if we went down to assembly, you're just like, oh, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> do we need to do that? This is what colleges are for. <laughs> We're moving right? a like, button. <laughs> yeah, Sarah's not falling for this. This is an easy Jedi mind trick. She's not falling. No, for but it. like college, college projects, university yeah, projects, master's degree because frankly, if the as long as there is some outcome and they can write a paper or a thesis about it, it's been at least a qualified success, right? Like it, it actually working software mm -hmm. doesn't that can be globally distributed and used, especially via a web browser, is not the goal of the master's thesis. And no. so they can get away with it. And I, I think that's really important because I mean, you know, I, I'm in the same boat, which is the projects I work with, the projects that you know I sell and that my company fulfills are entirely based on them existing at some future state. And that really limits the range of choices you can make when you're when you're starting to explore and build something. I, I mean, I, I don't recommend this, but like I've pulled this trick before, basically their trick, which is, you know, hey, I just learned about new technology X. And then somebody's like, hey, how do we build Y? And you just say like, X is the best way to build Y for sure, right? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, I've seen that right. before. This new web browser will yeah. be based on ZFS. Yeah. 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 <laughs> just, I, lo I love it when it's like yeah. the wrong combination where it's like, oh yeah, absolutely. We yeah. want to use low, low level socket interfaces to create a new shoe shopping site. You yeah. Know, it's just like, yeah. And that, my oh. friends, is why many Fortune 500 companies are still trying to figure out why they have eight JavaScript front end libraries <laughs> on yeah. different pages. Well, that's, you can see that urge, right? That collective yeah. urge to go that one level of abstraction and kind of encode all your knowledge because you're like, I'm going to make this so much easier for everybody else in the yeah. future. I'm going to yeah. build this one page in Angular and you guys will see. It's going to be really awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Svelte, is, Svelte is clearly the one that's going to come in now and, and just make everything. It's going to be so bad because right. it's just right on that edge of like, wow, I, I just had it. When, when someone says they had a conversion experience, you're like, oh, all right, we'll, we'll be maintaining that for 12 years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what did Teresa say when she was on the podcast? Well, if, she, if somebody is trying to convince her that she says that's fine as long as you deprecate something else we were doing. Right. So it doesn't keep stacking. Dun, dun, dun. That's the trick for letting somebody else try something now. Back to React. All right, everybody, it is that time of the episode. I'm going to shout out a lifeboater, somebody who earned a badge for answering a question that had a score of negative three and got it up to a score of 20 or more, creating a nice little knowledge artifact on the web. So today it is how to delete uh, .web files, but only if they exist. Asked by Mickey four years ago and answered by Josh Smith. So thank you very much. This uh, lifeboat badge was awarded yesterday. 
I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me at Ben Popper on Twitter, and you can email us podcast at stackoverflow.com. And I'm Sarah Chips, Director of Community here at Stack Overflow, and you can find me at Sarah Joe on GitHub. Sarah, this is a question for you. Adam, you are not allowed to answer this. Why is Peterborough, Ontario called the Electric City? <laughs> I don't. Should I guess something? It's yeah. where Canadians invented electricity. Very close. It was the first town in Canada to use electric streetlights. That's from the Wikipedia page. Wow. Yeah. So and now, good internet. Uh, I'm Paul Ford, and you can check out my company, postlight.com. I'm a friend of Stack Overflow. And Adam, how do people reach you? What do you want them to know? Where do they find your podcast? Tell us. <laughs> okay, so yeah, <laughs> I'm Adam Gordon-Bell. You can find me on Twitter, at Adam Gordon-Bell. The podcast is, is co-recursive, so CO and then the word recursive. You can find it wherever you find podcasts. And yeah, check out Earthly, the build tool. It's open source. You can find it at earthly.dev. That's all I got. <laughs>